And that, sweet listeners, was hello and welcome to the show in Morse code. Beep, 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 beep. Be nice to each other and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode. And you know what this show is because you guys are smart enough to have searched it. You're looking at the screen. And if you guys are astute enough to have Googled our guest today, you may be thinking, why have we got an author? And I'll tell you the truth. I've been through quite a lot recently and I've been, ex- I've been terrified of this interview because for me, I have to make sure I'm on my top form to get the most out of this man because just what he's imparted to me indirectly through his fiction work um, has helped me to build businesses. It helped me to understand myself, helped me to save my own life in, in many ways. So there's been a kind of terror. I thought of like a hundred introductions, but all I want to say to people is do not be distracted by the fact that this is a songwriting podcast and we're talking to an author. If you're astute enough to understand some of the figures I'm going to be pulling out of, out of Griff today, you'll know that this is not just relevant to songwriting. Some of the things he's talking about are so important in our industry and they're so, so important for the way we are going to be able to earn money and have a living. And as you're going to hear today, have a real life. So I would like to welcome to the show my new adopted granddad, and he cannot get rid of me, Sir Griff Hosker. Welcome. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie. So I want to start with some figures because I think today people have a kind of strange bias towards needing uh, some reason to respect people, whereas I found your books and I read them through and through and through, and I've never found books that hit so beautifully on archery, riding, politics, how to talk to young women, how to nurture families, how to build castles, how to, some of these things that might not seem relevant, but the detail with which you write, Griff, for me is actually art. There's a difference between writing books or writing songs and art. So how many books have you published and when did you start writing, just so people can get a scale? Published 171 books. I started writing, I retired as a consultant in 2011. And my first book was published in 2012. In the first few books, I was really writing about probably six books a year, but now I write 12 to 14 books a year. <laughs> Wait. So, because last time we spoke, you've added a book. I knew that that would be the case, but one a month. Can you please just take people through your process? Because it blew me away and I'll make sure they understand it in a moment. But what's your daily process? Daily process. Get up at six o'clock in the morning, put a pot of coffee on, my study, check my emails, because I do get a lot of readers who email me with queries, complaints, whatever, it doesn't matter. So I deal with all those first. I then look at how many books I sold yesterday, because I'm a bit evil like that. I'm sorry, but I am. Good. You're honest, though. I like that. Yeah. Then then I go put my, whatever I did yesterday writing, I put that up and put Grammarly on just to check what I did yesterday. And in going through that, it refreshes me what I've actually got to write today. Then I begin to write and I write 5,000 words a day. Not all in one fell swoop, but this time now is when I've stopped. I, I won't be writing anymore today. I've done, you know, I've, I've nearly done my quotient. That'll have to do today because I can get more done later on. So then I write that book and because I'm, and I'm going to finish it which this one, I've got a little program I do, an Excel program that tells me when I'm going to be finished because I've got a deadline for myself and it tells me how many days. So I try and beat wow. however many words I've got to do. So I don't need to do 5,000 today because I only started this book four days ago and I've done 25,000 words already. <laughs> and how many in a book, Griff? How many thousand words? 90,000. So the one you're reading at the moment, Crusader, has got 120,000 because it was just... Some stories demand that. Rarely do they get less than 90, but occasionally it might just be 86 or 87,000, but that's very rare. So when I've finished writing that book and then go through it and, and look at it with, um, as though I've never read it and I just edit the book and rewrite stuff. So for example, the last book I wrote, which is to John Hawkwood, it is my most successful series. Um, cause I've got figures. It's the, in terms of average figures, it's sort of sold an average, uh, 18,000 copies of each book. That's at the moment. So that one, when I got to the end, I realized that there was a character had introduced halfway through and I could get more mileage by going back and adding them a, a little bit in the beginning because it's, it's all to do with layers of character 
and situations and color that you're actually doing. So th that's what I did. And then when I've done that, I finished all my editing. I put Grammarly on again. Then I give it to my wife. Well, I print it off because she doesn't use the computer to edit. She uses old fashioned school teacher, A4 paper, red pen, going through circles. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday we sat and we in my, in here and we edited this. And by that, I mean, she said, some simple, you need a comma here. Other times she said, I don't understand this. This character is doing that. Why are they doing that? And I've got to, or sometimes she'll say, that's not clear who's speaking. So we'll clarify it. And then when we finish that, I will then go through the program again with another Grammarly and then it's ready for publications. So as soon as my latest book, Wallace's War is published, I'll put this one up for pre-order, even though it's not till January. Uh, then I can get myself my printed copies. They're all behind me on the bookshelf. Get my printed copy so I can look through, see what it physically looks like. I mean, I, you you probably read Kindle, which is different, but actual book, we're very cons keen in, to make the books all look the same. So they do look the same. But, you know, how you have it. My, my son, he's, he's brilliant, really, because he just keeps saying, no, Dad, you got to get this right. Make sure all the copyright looks exactly the same, make sure the font's the same size. And, and so we do that. And then I move on. But the way I then write is, because that book was about 15th century Italy, the next book, which I've, I started three or four days ago, is not about Italy. It's set in the Sudan in 1882. It's a period because that way I can't mix up characters Archery as opposed to gunnery, you know, I mean, when you, you know yourself, when you have archery, you don't say shoot, you don't say fire, you say loose or release. Whereas when I'm doing my red coats, it's called red coats rifle, didn't you? But when I do my red coats book, it's, you know, mark your targets, fire, volley fire. And it's, so you got to get the terminology right, which is you. So I've not decided what I'm writing after this book, which should be finished by, I would say, Probably about the 25th of November, I'll have that finished. So by the time my wife said it, it'll be early December. That's fine. We've got lots of time to, to do stuff. The cover's done. That came this morning. And then I will work out what book I'm going to do next. That'll be the February book. Work out where I'm going to go with that. It, it probably be from an existing series. And sometimes you do a series and, and I think it's great. And my readers think it's great, but it doesn't sell. I've got a couple of series that don't sell that. I, I used to get upset by that, but I don't anymore because I've realized I can't please everybody. And, and Anarchy is, and, and the Viking series are by far and away the biggest, my most popular books. They both sold more than a third of a million books each, both series. So I know that they are the most popular. But the other ones I'm writing for me because I like the characters that I'm writing about and I like the situations that they're going to get in and so on. And, and I like the periods. There's one series I've done about Tudor England, and I wrote the whole series just for the third book, which will be my last book, which is about the Battle of Flodden. Flodden you know, the famous Flodden Field where King James of Scotland died. Uh, okay, and, yeah, got it. Yeah, that one. And it's not far from here. And I've been to the battlefield. It's an amazing battlefield. It's just literally 40 miles up the road from where I live. So I wanted to write that, but I couldn't just write about Flodden. Had to write two prequels to get to that point. Now they've sold all right. I mean, between them, they've sold 7,000 books, but it, what it means is when it gets to flooding, that will be the last in the series. Cause that's what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I'm not going to kill anybody else. So like I did with, <laughs> in fact, I got an email the other week. I wrote a series which prequels yours. You remember the character Ridley in the anarchy yes. series? Yes. Well, he was. The friend of the hero of one of my books called House Curl. Um, and I killed him off in the end of it. And I keep getting emails from people saying, <laughs> why did you kill him off? And that must like, be such a compliment, right? That, that you've oh, written yeah. something that's so close to people's heart. Oh yeah. Oh no. I, the, my best one like that was, is an American Marine who emails me regularly. And I wrote a book about uh, Saxons. It was really King Arthur I was writing about. Uh, he was called Lord Lamb. And I had him being killed on a battlefield. And Steve sent me an email and he said, Griff, he said, you've just had a 54-year-old ex-gunnery sergeant marine blubbing like a baby <laughs> when you kill Lord Lamb. Well, that's lovely because that means you've engaged with the character. It means that you, you've created someone 
who is believable. That's, that's for me, he's all of it. I'm a storyteller. I tell stories. And if there's a message behind the story, great. But basically, it's a story so that when people finish it, I want them to go, I enjoyed that. It's another book or, you know, that's what I want. So, yeah, there's 171 books that's actually published. And then there's another three to be published. And by Christmas, I would have sold, I've sold 1.94 million books. Because last time we spoke, it was 1.8 something. 1.94 now. So by... But just after Christmas, when the audio sales come in and the other, it'll be two million books, which is really nice. So it, it took me about eight years to get to a million, and it's taken me just two or three years to get a little bit beyond that. So. I mean, if anyone was smart enough to pick up on the subtleties of what Griff was saying in terms of being a creative, being diligent, working hard, having a process, working with your family, the reason you do things, all of that. When I first met, I've still got the notes here. When we first spoke, you and I, Griff, I wrote down about 60 things and I went, how do I pass all that? But let's just really quickly go back. 171 books out, one a month. And you, you didn't mention me, you spoke to me about the guy who does your covers, even Griff on my Kindle, every morning when I wake up and read or the time when I read 10 books in about two weeks, I've had to slow down because life came in. Um, I still see the beautiful covers and I remembered the kind of prosody, the unity of the artwork and it Turns out the guys from down the road, um, 5,000 words a day, 1.92 million books sold. And for people that are just kind of hearing the figures, I want to just give some context to, well, offer you the chance to give yourself context, Griff, but what's the reason that you write so often and so prolifically? I always wanted to be a writer um, from when I was seven or eight, I was writing stories, but Growing up in the 1950s and 60s, I am an old man. Where growing up in the 19, <laughs> as I did, and going to a grammar school, you know, you didn't didn't say be a writer. Besides which, the only way to be a writer until Amazon Kindle came along was quite simply you had to get a publisher. And the publishing world is an old boys club. It's it's people in London and and big cities who, if they owe you, they will get you a publisher or they get you an editor. But if they don't know you, yeah, you can. I, I, I was cleared out of the loft the other week, um, and, and I found twelve unpublished novels that I've written. I'm not going to publish them; they're upstairs. They're still in the loft. I, but I tried to get those, and I've got all the rejection slips from all the publishers who said I was not good enough to be a writer. So I was put down until I was sixty-two years old. <laughs> I got the chance. I thought, I'm going to write. And then once I started to write and I found out that there were people who enjoy my books, then I'm writing for them. And if I'm really practical, it's for posterity that my company, Sword Books, um, will continue to publish books long after I'm dead. And that company is owned by my family. So my grandsons, my granddaughter, they will all benefit. So why write a book a month? I want them to have a lovely, comfortable life. I want them to have the choice of doing what they want because they want to do it, not because they have to. I became a teacher because that was the only thing I thought I was any good at. I was quite good at it, but I was lucky. You know, that was the all, all I could do. It was not my first choice. I said my first choice was writing, but I couldn't actually get into that old boys club. So I've started my own old boys club. It's called Kindle. You know, uh, <laughs> and it's lovely because I, I advise, I know you mentor songwriters. There's five, four or five writers who've begun writing as a result of me. Yeah, the, uh, at least, friend, I would say at least, Griff, that's humble. Well, this is direct. That you know of. Well, direct. I mean, she exactly. was a head teacher. She, I did some work with her and she, she'd been trying to get published. And I said, well, why are you going through a publisher? So we sat down. She went through, went through the books. I told her what to do. She's now had four books published and they're bestsellers. So she's done that. There's another guy who was a teacher, worked with a friend of mine, and this friend said, Griff, can you give him some advice? He'd like to be a writer. He's only a young bloke, history teacher. So I told him how to do it. He published three historical novels for young people. He sent me an email uh, in September, said, I've handed him my notice as a teacher. I'm now a full-time writer. And I can always go back and do supply, but I just enjoy the writing. So it is nice the fact that um, I can do something. I can give advice to people. 
Um, I never regard any of the people who I advise as competitors because we're all unique. We all do our own thing. We all write our, my style is my style. I like it. My readers like it. That's lovely. If they don't, well, there's lots of other readers and writers out there, you know. Can I tell you one of the biggest compliments I had? It came a few weeks ago. There's a writer called Gordon Doherty. Uh, he's, I read him when I was still a teacher. He writes Roman historical novels. How beautiful. And last year, he sent me uh, an email. Asked, Could I donate a book for his wife's charity? He's got a wife's got a charity. To walk, she told gave him one. And anyway, so he sent me another email a few weeks ago. I said, could he have my new book and the next book for auction? So I suggested, and could I review and read his latest book? Because no. he, he wants a comment from me to put on the cover. Now that for me is like... That hits you, right? Doesn't it? That's a compliment, isn't it? You're, somebody that I read and I admired greatly now thinks, because he's read my stuff, that I'm a good writer. So, you know, and that's fantastic. So why do I write... As much as I do, I love doing it and I need to do it. If I don't, my wife will tell you that I am bad-tempered and grumpy. Definitely. I am bad-tempered and grumpy if I haven't written. She, you know, I, I don't see that, but other people do. That if I haven't written, you know, sometimes it happens. You know, I mean, I'd, I had knee surgery earlier on this year, so I couldn't write for three days. I might have been grumpy with the knee surgery, but I think I was more grumpy. <laughs> The fact that I couldn't actually sit on the keyboard and write the stories and get the stories out there, you know, and it just, I love the research, you know, in this all around me, all the books, I love just pulling a book off the shelf and, oh, I can use that, that piece of information or I'll do this. And, that. and it, I just love that, that, that kind of information that you can, that you can do. So, and then like you say, it comes through in the, in the books because it's got that pattern of, of reality. That you believe, oh, absolutely believe what I'm writing, even though I am a storyteller, which means I tell lies for a living. But even you know, and, and I am, I've got a network of people who will correct me. I've got friends in in the Shenandoah Valley, lovely, lovely people, and I've been there quite a lot. And I've set one of my books over there. I hadn't been for a couple of years, so when I sent it to them, I said, "Just tell me, is this doable? You know, I mean, the, I've got this Viking going up the River Shenandoah. Could he have done it the way I've done it?" And they said, yeah, so, and that, that was good for me. And then I already published it once I got that, you know, vindication and uh, it was okay. Can you tell me, cause it's a little greatest hit for me because there's a couple of subtleties I want to have people understand just to kind of close the chain on how special you are as a writer. But just quickly, you said you tell plausible lies for a living. Could you just talk about that particular story? I think you know which one. I, I wrote about Zulu. Right, that is Soldier of the Queen. Which one of my grandson's favorite films? One of my favorite films. I love it. But when I researched that, I found that the filmmakers had made more, told more lies in that than they had the truth. So, for example, do you may have you seen the film? The one I don't with think Mike, I have. The, no. There's a character in it called Hook, played by James Booth, and in the book they have him as a drunkard and a villain, but he gets a VC because he acts bravely. When his daughters watched, and they were in their 80s, watched the film in 1960, whatever it was, they were so appalled by the way her, their dad was portrayed that they walked out of the film because Henry Hook was not only not a drunk, he was a teetotaler and he got more good service medals than anybody else. So <laughs> I, I do I do tell plausible lies. What, what's the story you, you think? You think? Uh, it's good. You're, you're, very, you're an honest man. So I believe, I'll trick your memory, for context. Yeah. Griff, Griff has told me that he will get emails from, let me put this right. So essentially experts, right? People who spend their whole lives in archery, their whole lives in horse riding, their whole lives. So just, just selfishly to insert myself for just a second, as, as an extremely arrogant, very kind of rebellious 27-year-old male who thinks that he knows everything in the world, it's very rare that I will pick up a book that changes my life. It's very rare that I'll read 14 to kind of exclusion of everything else in my life. And it's very rare that as a huge, huge nerd, shall we say, for anything to do with combat or humanity or care. Like I said, when it was talking to a 12-year-old, one of the characters talking to a 12-year-old girl and how you would speak to a young person having had that experience or when you're fighting a man who's trying to take your life and the very kind of small examples I've had of that in my life. 
I was I was kind of lost in these books. I was kind of flipping my Kindle over, going, "What? Well, this is fiction. This is this is quote unquote fiction because I can't see a single thing in here that is not absolutely real." As much as I would understand it, of course, I wasn't born in the Middle Ages. But you talked about how in so in Greenland when they discovered America, so to speak. You oh, said, yeah. Do you remember that one? Go, yeah. I'm trying to cue you up. It wasn't, wasn't Greenland they went to. It, was, it went to Iceland. But what I yes. did was, I, yeah, another story now, yeah. I, I've been fascinated by the Vikings in America. And uh, according to the experts, they found evidence that they were in Newfoundland. So I knew that. Now, I'd been to Newfoundland. I landed in the old days, in the olden days, you know, we, they used to land <laughs> every transatlantic flight at Gander in Newfoundland, refuel, and then fly you on to New York. So I'd, I've been to Newfoundland. Uh-huh. What a God. It's, I apologize for any new fish. <laughs> place it is. But just south of there is a place called Maine, which is beautiful, beautiful part of America. And I figured, just using my plausible lies theory, that if they got to Newfoundland, all they got to do is cross this tiny bit of water and they're in Nova Scotia, which I've also been to, and they can sail down the coast past the Bay of Fundy and there's this beautiful land of Maine. So I, I did that. And I found an island, Moose Deer Island, something like that. So I had them landing on there. I had them meeting the local Indians. Now, I published the book. And then, like I say, I think I told you this before, I, I just expected them to get shot down in flames by experts. Quite the contrary. I got an email from an American archaeologist who said he'd find a stratified Danish coin of the 10th century in the very bay that I was writing about. Now, I'd made it up, but I'd made it up plausibly because I'd, I'd done my research. I thought, well, if they got there, if they sailed all the way across the Atlantic, which was the hardest part, then to sail down there was relatively easy. And then as a result of that, another guy, an ex-American colonel in the Air Force, sent me a paper he discovered that was published in 1935 about a tribe of Sioux Indians in the Midwest who died out in 1856 who were blue-eyed and blonde-haired. Oh, uh, anyway, yeah. That's, that's, that's a plausible lie. But then the other part about the research is, I don't know if I told you this, there's um, a group of Viking uh, reenactors who are very keen reenactors who live in Minnesota. Yep. The Missouri, Mississippi, Sound Rivers. They are building a Viking snecker using my books so, so the snecker's a ship so, so it, the drekar dragon ship was a great big warship a snecker is a much smaller one they had one at our local museum it's about 12 14 foot long the techniques i described i researched them you know how they made pine tar and they made pine tar by cutting down the tops of a tree which they used and then setting fire to the roots and channeling the liquid that came off into a bowl and using that to paint the bottom of the boats. They were doing that. So they're, they're building a Viking ship in Minnesota based on a book that I made up. But talk about, like we said, unity. And unity just means every single thing, every stroke on the painting, every word in your book is there for a reason. And it's founded in reality. And I think when you write like that, for example, we learn from films, we learn from stories, we learn from books. Stories are the first versions of everything that we love, including songwriting. So if you can write a book in a way that helps someone like me, as I said, very arrogant, thinks he knows everything, but I can read your books and be reminded of the truths of how to treat people, how to work, biz- how to bring people to you, how to build a business, how to look after people in your family, how to defend, how to trust and understand when not to trust people, how to bring people into your life. And all these things that I do on a day-to-day basis in my madness of what I'm trying to do on the planet, I read them and I saw them mirrored, obviously selfishly in your books. And I went, who is this person? You Normally we watch a film and we don't really care who it was, or we don't care who wrote it. But for me to have these books at a time when I needed, could we say, reminding of what the best way to go about doing things is when I was lost, and I have all these books ahead of me, to, to pick up the phone, to send an email, to send you that video, which by the way, you responded to instantly, which kind of blew me away, how connected you are. Yeah. Well, that's crazy. That's, I, George Clooney's auntie was Rosemary Clooney. And George Clooney, I've, I've actually met him at a film festival. He's a lovely man. 
But he said something on one interview. They said, Rena, you, you've always got time for your fans. And he said, yeah, because my auntie told me this. She said, you would not be where you were if it wasn't for the fans. I wouldn't be where I am today being able to have a very nice lifestyle, thank you very much, because because if it wasn't for all the people who read my books and, and get in touch with me about my books and tell me, oh, I enjoy this or whatever. So it's just, but the, one thing I was going to say last time was when I write, the process is a very, very emotional one for me. You probably remember when uh, Alfred comes home and he's been away and his wife is dying of the plague. I, I mean, to be honest, when you do write, like you said, you're making 55-year-old men who've probably seen life being taken in front of their eyes or had to do it themselves. You're making them cry. Not saying I'm at that level, but there are moments that maybe I couldn't reference to you that, that touched me because you write in such a beautiful way. I cried when I wrote that. I actually cried writing it. Yeah. And I've just wrote in this new book, I had a, a, a soldier whose wife dies in childbirth. And I just imagine what that must be like, that you have this new birth of a baby and yet you're losing the woman who did it. And, and again, but there's another one was, <laughs> it's in the Napoleonic series. I had it. My hero is a Napoleonic soldier with a horse, but the horse is such a brave horse and he dies. But I think you're special, Griff, because actually what we may be missing, which is what I'm going to be doing my foundation, what I plan to do day to day, is you write that the wife has died. The plague has come. Someone has lost their life. This person that was there, when oh, I won't spoil it, people are going to read it, but for example, the way that Edward dies, uh, Alfred's friend, like that. I think because you're not afraid to cry, you're not afraid to research these things, you're not afraid to write it, I myself, who's been through an extreme experience of life, can see the reality in it. It's not gilded. It's just as it is. And Therefore, then, if we talk about contrast, which you talk about in songwriting, you know, when you have that horrific reality, right? When you write about something triumphant or the finish or the success, yep. you actually give people that opportunity to have that real feeling. That's why I think you can make people cry is because you're not afraid to write about and talk about the extremes. So it's special. I'm lucky in that when I was a teacher for 14 years, I taught in tough inner city schools and I saw all of life there. I mean, um, it's a bit like the confessional that I can yeah. use ideas in my books without referencing the actual people. But a lot of the people, they always say, if you've ever met a writer, you're in one of his books. Um, that's you know, made up for me. And he said, don't annoy me. I'm a writer and you'll be in one of my books. <laughs> Uh, two of the guys in the pub I drink with Roger and we were talking about my books on Friday, Roger and Sid, and he was talking to somebody who barely knew him and he said, oh yeah, we get killed off regularly. Every time we annoy Griff, he kills us. So but they know <laughs> that they quite like that idea, you know. So, But it's good though, isn't it? I think if you could just speak about how and why you implement characters in real life. I know it might be obvious to you, but why do you have real people you put in? Because you, you've got to get the voice patterns. You've got to get how they talk, how they react in a particular situation. Voice patterns. Wow. Okay, cool. What are these people that, that I'm writing about? There's no way I can know what they were like. Um, you're only doing it based on the shadow that they leave. If you follow me that, you know, in history, people leave a shadow and it's there and it's what everyone else talks about. You know, the big problem we have with history is it's always written by the victors. So all we know about, um, I was trying to think, yeah, the Vikings, the Vikings never wrote anything down. They had sagas where they told the stories, but it was written about the monks. You know, the monks are going to have a fairly jaundiced view yeah. of what Vikings. Certain northern I, monks as well, mate, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I've got to imagine what they're like, but then I've got to think of people that I know. And I know a lot of people, and not all of them are nice, not all of them are horrible, but they've all got different characteristics. So you try to put those people in. Um, and it's not just about the physical thing. That's easy. The hero strides manly. It's not about that. It's about, because very often, I, always, I love Shakespeare, and Shakespeare wrote some wonderful characters. Think about Iago in Othello. Iago is so evil, and yet so plausible. Everyone likes him. That's but he's... That. A really nasty character. And I, that's, that's the way I view it. You know, the, the people are very deep. No one knows what someone else is thinking and no one knows what someone else is really capable of. 
So I, I, I try and, and use those. I mean, Mike, the dog walker, is my age, and he's always uh, Cedric the pig farmer. So <laughs> In the books, yeah, because you talked to us. So Mike is someone, I believe, that walks around where you live. And actually, on a quick side note, in terms of when people ask me, you know, how do I write, or I find a lot of people struggle, sorry, when I'm working with them or mentoring them, when they're not writing about a real experience or something they don't understand, they hit a lot of roadblocks, which yeah. is fine. But you write about a place called Heartburn, and that's where you live. Yeah. You, you don't have to worry about the details. You just look out the window. Look out the window, yeah. yeah. As I said to you before, if you come up today, I was going to take you there. Literally across there, 250 yards from my house are medieval plow marks. They're, they're still there. They're, they haven't been moved since before the Norman conquest. So I can go and see them. I was going to take you into Heartburn Village because of this is a little Oh, I'm fact. going to cry, mate. I should have, I, for, for context, people should have been there. <laughs> when you go down Heartburn Village, there's a, a stone because there was a certain family who so, sold their manor in about 1300, moved up north to a place called Wessington, from which came George Washington. So George no. Washington's family came from Heartburn. There's a stone there. <laughs> Hertie Burney, yeah. Hertie Burney, and they came from, he was the lord, his, his dad was, was the lord of the manor of Heartburn. So it's, it's like, it's wonderful. I just got, did you drive up the road about four miles? There's a place called Bishopton. And when William the Conqueror came over, his brother, Odo, was the first bishop of Durham. He built his castle. And all he did was made a moss and bailey. Now, a moss and bailey, if you don't know, is you dig a hole, that's the ditch. You pile up the earth you have, you put a tower on the top, a wooden wall around the side. It's still there. There's no wood on it because he That's moved. That's a thousand after, years, people, for the context. You just moved up to Durham, but you can still see it. The sheep graze on it. It's a sheep mound. And, and to go then, and so you can visualize it, you think, this is where William the Conqueror came. He must have stayed there with his brother when he came and harried the north, you know. So it's, I do like to see places. I mean, this weekend, um, there's some reenactors called uh, East, Ingl East India Company, and they've taken to me and they invite me to all their events, and I just sign my books or whatever. Um, but the other week, uh, this is a bizarre, this shows you what happens when you're a writer. I was invited to Whitby by them. Right? So they said, "Can you come to Whitby and bring your camera? We'd like you to be there, Bishop." So when I got there, I discovered that these redcoats were going to be an honor guard for a couple of Viking reenactors who had got married on the Saturday at Whitby Abbey at a hand-fasting ceremony. And yeah, this traditional, was, yeah. And they wanted me to take the photographs of the, the, the Guard of Honour with the redcoats and then go into the church at the top of Whitby Abbey Steps, the Dracula Church, and take photographs of the couple. And then when I went back, this guy makes me for a living. He's invited, you know, and to the people I meet and, and the, the kind of experiences I have, it's grown exponentially. So I'm meeting reenactors who dress exactly the way they are. Uh, I've been invited every Sunday if I want to. There's some reenactors in Hartlepool and I can go and try on any of the mail, any of the armor. Oh. I can try that out. So I'm going to be going up there and they've invited me to do it. So I'll be seeing them next. Saturday, uh, yeah, next Saturday, um, it's, it's a convention where I'm going. They invite me to London to go with them. And these are all reenactors. So when, when I, I've got great experience of knowing how they light a fire because these reenactors are, are fanatical. When I went to Gettysburg in 2013 for the 150th, uh, reenactment of it, there were soldiers there dressed in all the gear. They went to get a drink because it's incredibly hot. They would not take a drink in a plastic container, they had to have it in a pewter cup because that's what they, yeah. they, they were camping out in, you know, 110 degrees, but they were, they were, detail was unbelievable. So yeah, I fired a musket. I've been up to Chester's and the second Augusta invited me to fire a catapult, oh, which I loved oh You know, they let me put on Roman centurion war gear. So I, I mean, I've got a sword in, in the cupboard there, the, the Earl Marshal sword. I've got the proper sword. I've got the helmet. I've got the coif. And eventually I'm going to get the male armor so I can put it on. And I know what that feels like on your head. When you hold a sword, I know what it feels like when you're trying to do it. What I haven't done is to try and draw proper war bow. My friend in, uh, from. That's um, quite a feat though. 
Yeah, he well, he reckons that there's no one alive today who could pull one of the the, the war bows that they had that they were so so powerful. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, he, he's made one that will. I think it's it's got to pull something like forty five pounds, which is you know. So when I wrote in one of my books, he sent me a. He said, "Griff, you've got them sending the holding the." bow at full draw for too long and you can't you literally pull it and release but the, yeah this is the detail that you come across because to translate this to people listening about songwriting if you want to write about a certain thing understand what it's like at least for you because we talk about films for example where they hold the bow almost yeah. like it's a toy and this is a thing that's sort of this is relevant to songwriting, by the way. Think about people understanding your music. But you, they, they hold them for 20 minutes or something, or they're, they're the size of kind of pencil cases. But I did want to actually divert you because would you mind just telling the story about how much they offered you to write before Kindle and now Kindle share and what that brought in terms of a career for you? Before Kindle, I was just, it was teacher's pension. So with Kindle, what happens is, you do all the hard work, if you like. You you write it, you get the cover design, but they give you 70% of whatever you charge for that. And if you're on Kindle Unlimited, then they, they don't give you any news much. But, so I don't do Kindle Unlimited. So they give you 70% of that. When we priced our books, I just looked at the average. So I, I charge a lot less than, say, Bernard Cornwall, but more than some other people who... who so I, I do that. And then the, the paperbacks... And the hardbacks are new. Now those, I get 60% of, of the, and there's more work involved for me in that. And they don't sell as many. So if I tell you now that I think 9% of my sales are prints and all the rest are Kindle. So Kindle is. They're me. Yeah. So we've got 70% if you work with Kindle. And what were they offering you if in terms of through publishing? What was that? I've had a publisher. I've just ended my, um, the way I work with them, but they were paying me 50 pence a book. That was like 50 pence a book. So what's that? 5%? It depends what they were charging really, doesn't it? So, um, 50 pence, about, about 10%, 10%. For them, so then- 10% or 70% if you do the work for yourself. So that is a really good lesson, people, because if you look at when you work for yourself, if you are Griff, if you have in your power, because that's not even assuming whether the publisher could get one a month, which they'd probably say, no, we can't. Whereas you've got one a month, 5,000 words a day, you're putting in sweat equity, you're showing your family how to work, you're employing a number of your family, you trust all of your family members. 1.9 million and counting books sold, creating equity for a good life for your family. But when you do that and you conduct yourself the way that you conduct yourself, you've inspired me inside of two months of having worked with you and you've You've allowed me to recorrect. Um, and if you do that for your family, if you are someone like Griff, where you're creating wealth in the world, but you're creating it for the betterment of yourself, obviously we're all selfish, but when oh, yeah. that overflows, um, and, and even Griff is so kind of easy to talk to and responsive. And I think that's kind of the point. And even the Alfred character, quote unquote, let's flip it to something more relevant. I almost think of it like, what would Jesus if, do if he had a sword? right? Yeah. It's, it's protecting those yeah. that need protecting. It, it's being able to, again, the example is be able to talk to a nine-year-old girl who just lost her father beautifully. And even credit to Griff's writing, be able to talk as you would be heard as a teacher or knowing that every time you step out of the gates, you risk your life and that of everyone else's. And I wanted to talk about the fact that people are still naming their children after you. I went to New Zealand, uh, before I went, there's a, a guy got in touch with me and said, um, I never read a book until I read your Viking series and I loved them. And you, you said you come to New Zealand on your website. Any chance of meeting you? So I said, yes, sir. So I met him in Wellington. He brought all his family. And it was lovely. We all went and we had a great, great lunch and so on. And then about two years ago, he sent me an email uh, saying his wife was pregnant and it's going to be a boy. And could, I, could they name the son Griff after me? And I said, well, I'm honored. You know I me. Mean, that's kind of sad. <laughs> It's just that blew me away. I just I wasn't expecting that. I mean, it's I do. The power of how you write allows people to see themselves in it, but not just a fraction. Like you said, me, I see it entirely. At least of what I'd like to be if I was alive in those times. And I want to add to that. Griff also doesn't really pay for dinner or hotels anywhere he goes in the world because of the quality of work <laughs> that he does. I, I, I do. I do pay, but people. <laughs> you would. You're. Uh, 
put me up and then say, well, come, come and stay with me, come and see this and so on. And, and but as I said, thanks to COVID, I've not been away for, for quite a while, but when I do go away, I mean, I, I, when I went to America, I don't know if you can see that. But okay, so that was, gets book ideas in the valley. That was from Winchester. So that's a, it's the, only, the only newspaper who's ever written anything about me is a newspaper in America. And they had that whole article that's about lovely. me in the, in the valley. But, um, and again, they're lovely, lovely people over there and, and they think highly of me and they make a fuss of me when I go over there. So it, it is nice. But for me, where you can see me now, is the only place I can physically write. The okay, only place. Really? I tried when I first retired uh, a few years afterwards. Recently, my wife and I used to like to go to the Cannes Film Festival, and she was still working. I said, "Well, I'll tell you what, I'll go. We'll we'll get um, an apartment for a month, and and I'll go there and write, and then you come over and we'll have a week at the film festival." Didn't get one word done. Took my laptop. Just couldn't get it done. When I went to New Zealand uh, a few years ago. I took my laptop thinking, this is great. You know, I'm on me on in a camper van. I'll have time at night. Just physically couldn't do it. The only place I can write, I can't write it anywhere else in the house. Do you know why? No, I have no idea why. I have no idea. <laughs> good. It would be so nice. I mean, it'd be nice to sit in my, I've got a lovely garden. It'd be nice to sit in my garden in the summer and just sit there, write with the birds to it. But I can't do it. I've got to come in here, shut that door, do my Larry Grace impression. I shut that door, then I sit. And, and then I keyboard here and then, then I write. Um, and I don't know. I've got all my books up here with all my notes. So what I do is, uh, this is how I physically, you asked about physically writing. This is, I use just simple books like that and I write. That's just. Just a journal for people that can't see it. Um, and then I can, I can go back and check behind me. You can see that whiteboard. There's nothing on it at the moment, but that's where I do my planning. So I'll just, plot things out and use that idea to, to plot things out. And it's just, it, it just feels comfortable to be in here. You know, I've got my chair, I've got my chair next to me for when anyone else is helping me, you know, wife, wife's editing or whatever, or when my daughter is sitting and we're going through the book because she does all the audio books and they're all, wow, they're all, yeah. all my, eventually be out in audio, but that takes, that takes some time. To actually do, I've got some lovely readers, you know, it's fantastic. I've got, but the first one I had, just a Viking one, his name is Marston York. Now that's oh, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a name. Uh, it, name you want to get weekend talking works. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, I'm on Twitter with a lot of these, my, my read, the, the people who physically read my books and I get a lot of nice feedback from them. I mean, there's uh, one of them just doing a new series and he, he rang me. He only lives in Sunderland, so I suppose we could have visited, but he said he wanted to get the pronunciation of all these Viking words properly. I said, well, well I can't help you. I said, I can't, <laughs> I can't speak Viking. I said, what I can do, he said, I, I can make sure it's spelled correctly. I said, but I can't physically, I know how it sounds in my head. Who would tell me that? I said, that might not be right. But in terms of that, that I didn't tell, I'm not sure I've told you this story before. Every morning I go dog walking. And about two years ago, I'm walking and the guy, I hadn't met him before. We're walking our dogs and so on. We got talking. She said, I got you. Oh, right. You're right. Oh, what kind of books do you write? I said, Viking books. Oh, I like Viking books. She said, I'll buy something. That was funny. So a few weeks later, she said, yeah, really enjoy your books. Didn't see him for six months. So six months later, he's on the field. He said, Griff, I've been trying to see you since I got back. I've just come back from Panama. Panama City, where I was working on contract, and I met one of your readers. He said, really? He said, oh, yes. He said, we sat in the bar talking about books, and he said he loved Viking books. And he said, had I read his favourite author, Griff Husker? I said, <laughs> not only have I met, uh, read him, I said, uh, he's one of my neighbours. And he said, oh, he said, could you get me a signed copy of one of his books? So he said, so Griff, can you, I'll, I'll buy a signed copy. So I'll give you one. So I gave him a book. And I said, so are you um, going back to Panama to give him the book? He said, no, he doesn't live in Panama. He's a Norwegian. He's a Viking. Oh, unbelievable. Is that Vikings? People who have Viking origin. But, yeah, but that's, that's, I, I'm not surprised. I know you're humble enough to be surprised, but as someone who's come into the quality of, of how you write. But they're reading it in their set. It's not the first language. Exactly. It's translated. Yeah, but that's because of the quality of what you're writing, mate. And, and I think that should sit as a compliment. And, what I wanted to do, because there is another aspect to you, 
Would you mind talking a little bit about your dad and what he did? Ah, uh, my dad. Yeah, my dad. He, he was. He would have been a hundred on Friday. Oh, really? He died twenty six years ago. But my dad and uh, I joined up in nineteen forty. Joined the navy, and he was. They put him on uh, small craft, so he was in what they call special services. It's not SAS, but it was Lord uh, Lord Mountbatten had him, and they were commandos, soldiers, and sailors. And he was on the Dieppe raid, so he took the Canadians there on that attempt to 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 land, and so and it was it was a disaster. And he he wouldn't often talk about the war. I managed to get him talking about it now and again, and he he was saying how it was a disaster, but he took them in there. It was also on Sword Beach. And his unit took in the French commandos at uh, Wieschen and then on South Beach. And he said, he told me that on the boat next to him was Bill Millens. That's the guy who plays the pipes for Lord Lovett. And you've seen the film, The Longest Day. My dad's boat was the one who took him in. And the, one of the stories he tells me, and I'll put it in, in a book I wrote about, about him, a fiction. The young gunner next to him, 19-year-old, had his head taken off by a, an 88-millimeter shell. So I came within that far of never being born. And when I took him back in 1994 with my uh, daughter and my mum, we went on the beach and he said, you see that house there? That's where the 88 millimeter gun was. No. And when we, we went into Wee Street, we found out that the French had built a museum to my dad's boat, Landing Craft 523. There's a poster of it on the wall over there. Wow. When we went in there, there's a model of the boat now, it's just tiny figures, but my dad was the one who was coxswain that, and he took the boat in there. So, and it was, it was just, we, he loved it over there, absolutely loved it. And we went, um, the very last day, I said, have you seen everything you wanted to, dad? And he said, well, I've not said goodbye to the lads, the ones who never came back from the war. Now, you live in France, so you'll know this, there's British war cemeteries all over. It's not like the Americans want, they're all over. I said, well, there's lots around here. I said, there's one, there's one at Heruville. So we went to Heruville. There's no one there. We parked up. We walked into the cemetery and when my mum wouldn't come in, she was too upset. And the three of us are walking around and my dad's going, hey, look at that 14 year old. And he died and oh, a sailor and he's rich. And I wonder what happened to our George. Now I'd never heard of our George. I said, what do you mean our George? He said, it was my best friend and my cousin. He lived next door to me. He died. On D-Day, he was a nurse in the Royal Army Medical Corps. I said, well, in all these cemeteries, there's a register. So we went to the register, opened it up. George Hogan was buried in that cemetery. So we, we went, stood by the grave, and no one from the family had ever been there. No one at all. They didn't even know where it was. So we just stood by the grave and said what we had to say. Dad died a couple of years later, but a year after, I took a party of 40 school kids, about 10 teachers. So me and another teacher, Pam, we took, got the minibus and we took eight kids. We went into Wee Street and we bought a tray of forget-me-nots. We went to George Hogan's grave and we covered it with forget-me-nots. So if you go to Heruville, there's one grave covered in blue forget-me-nots and that's George Hogan's. And I did that with really dad, you know, because he was, he was, uh, yeah, he was, he was, and then he, he came out of the Navy and he carried on doing national service in the army where he got a war wound because he was still in the army and he was, he was in a bad knee. And then that he came out of the army in 1945 and then started his family, you know, so he's a hero and he's, he's in that my book. That is boat. the word, isn't it? I think it's reserved, but that is the word. Yeah, he's a hero to me. Um, very under, uh, understated, never bragged about it. And I've tried to get that in my characters. I was My, just about to say that's there. Yeah, it really is there. They don't brag about it. Um, it's what I'm writing about now, Sir John Hawkwood. My wife doesn't like him as a character and I can understand it, but he's real. He doesn't, but he's a real character. And that's the, that's the, Alfred's not real. I made Alfred up. Was never, <laughs> I know. There was never ever an Earl of Stockton until Harold Macmillan. He was the only Earl of Stockton. You're the Prime Minister. He was the only one. So until uh. then. He was the Earl of Stockton because he was MP for Stockton, but I made him up. So the, all of that is, is not real. It is made up. Um, but I tried to make him like a real character. When I do write about real characters and, and I've done a lot of that, 
you do have a problem that, you know, you've got to work out what they were, what do you think they were like? And we've only got history. The shadow, so, as you said, you're fighting against the shadow. Yeah. So the easiest one to write out was King John, because by all accounts, you know, his contemporaries thought he was a bad The ones who came afterwards thought he was a bad bad and I can't, and even his mother didn't have a good word for him. Well, if, if your mum wants anything good about you, that's pretty, you know, savage, <laughs> you know, so uh, he's the only one. But yeah, every character, you're trying to find something in that character that you could like and that you would make. And I like, I like heroes. I genuinely like heroes. But I mean, we I, all do, don't we? I think. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, uh, for me, I think we're all aspiring exceptionalists, meaning yeah. even if we can't be the one with the sword, we can't be the one on the pitch, in the car, on the boats, like your dad. We want to be. We'd like yeah. to think that we'd learn from these people. And, Again, I think you write beautifully because I don't imagine much really bothers you in day-to-day life, does it? No, not really. I just, um, I've, I, I see my, two of my grandchildren every single day and, and I see my other three grandchildren at least once a week. And they really do ground you, you know, the, their, their needs and what they actually like is really kind of quite important. And, and my family more than... The most important thing in my life uh, is my family. So if I want to get any frustration out, if I had any, I would get my frustration out through the keyboard because that's how you do it. You're right. You're right. You're and right. You would you're- probably help people. I think, well, you've helped me because, I mean, when I see you, I'm going to be buying lunches. I'm going to be following you around like a little dog, trying to follow and understand you as a human, mate. It's, it's funny you say about the songwriting because that's where I started writing first was poetry. No. Okay. Yeah, published in the 1960s. You've got to eat small stuff. But I used to love writing poetry. I wrote my first poem. I found it the other day. My first poem in 1966, you know, and I, I, I grew up in the generation that was the Mersey poets, you know, uh, Roger McGough and people like that and reading people like Ted Hughes and Ted Gunn. Um, I'm a huge fan of T.S. Eliot, and he writes wonderful poetry. So I like writing poetry. Now, I do like the idea of making music. I'm a, I see you've got a guitar. I'm a lousy guitarist, but I have played guitar. <laughs> Me too. But when I was, uh, when I was a, a teacher, the music, head of music and I, we wrote four or five musicals together. Uh, one oh, of which yeah, I forgot you'd written, he's written musicals as well, guys. As one if of you which didn't know enough. Uh, done at the O2 in 2000. Most of them were done, you know, what it was, it was uh, uh, when the, it was the Millennium Dome then, wasn't it? Well, the Millennium yeah. Dome project was that you put in a, a bid to do a show then, but had to involve children, you know, so obviously that was fine. It was other school kids and it had to fulfill certain criteria. So I wrote, well, we wrote a musical based on some aliens coming to Hartlepool and so on. And mm-hmm. we wrote the music. We went down to the O2 and we did it in one of the big venues there. The kids all played the musical instruments. They did all the acting and so on. Um, it was, if I'm honest, it was the worst musical I wrote just because we had to work to a brief. And the way I work as a teacher, um, the music was easy because that was Mark and he's a brilliant musician. In fact, now he, he does, um, he's in a Mark, he's in a, a Dire Straits tribute band. He's retired as a teacher. I love it. He goes, he plays saxophone, so he does all the saxophone stuff in the Dire Straits. So he wrote the musical, but the actual concept of the play was mine. And my philosophy was, is the kids would come along, the school children, and say, right, who wants to be in it? And then they'd audition. Every single child would have a part. So I wrote a part for every single child. And then that determined it. And if you were really good, and then I wrote the music, I wrote the words. And so the words fitted in with the character of that and so on. And uh, yeah, but my favorite was the first one I wrote, which was called Shakespeare the Musical. Uh, Shakespeare is just a boy. He brings out, he, had, he got lots of rhymes in it and so on. And they, so I've got a CD there somewhere. And, and that was really, you know, that was lovely. But because I wasn't so lacking in confidence, we'd never done it before. I was dressed as William Shakespeare, sat on stage. <laughs> The whole time, you know, with long hair, a wig, and a shirt, and a, a, a pen, sat on a, an old-fashioned desk writing because I could then prompt the children yes. to the stage. Because, I mean, these kids were lovely kids, but, you know, they, it was not stage school, so anybody could, could actually be, be in but the you, show. 
Griff, I know you've been honest, as we all are, and said it wasn't my best one, but it brings me back to what actually I really wrote down. When I had all these notes, we talked about how prolific you are. Obviously, there's there's money that's been made, which you've distributed beautifully. You've invested in your family. But what I wrote, and it's right in front of me, fair, just. Oh, yeah. Because everything I've seen about you, instead of going, I'm going to write a play that's best for me, I'm going to write a play that's best for everyone. And that one kid, because I've been the tree before, I've been the character didn't quite get enough stage time. When you are written into something, when you are given a chance, when you're given, because I, I struggle with so many things I could barely concentrate, let alone perform at my best. So I wanted to just talk about what was your best achievement? If you need a jog, I can give you, it's about GCSEs, but despite all of what you've achieved, could you just share that? People understand that. Yeah, when, when I was a, a teacher, I, I kind of, I wasn't a bad teacher and I, I came up with this idea. The school where we had was an inner city school, you know, and it really was. They were tough kids, but they were great kids. If if we had a top set, it would have been overloaded with girls. There's been very few boys and mainly girls. And I thought that's going to do the self-esteem of nobody any good at all. So when I was head of the poems, I came up with this idea of taking the top 30 boys and putting them in one class. Yeah. And then the top 60 girls in the next two classes. So the top children were all getting it. And then what I was able to do then was I was able to teach to, because boys and girls do learn differently. Oh, we've got two sides of our brain, a female side and a male side. And by homing in on that male side, and I'll, I'll give you an example of, of how it works. Well, you did speaking and listening. It was the, you don't do this anymore, but years ago, they had to do a speaking and listening. And one of the boys had a really bad stammer. Um, they, they had to stand in front of the class. And when he did it, he was stammering. But all these boys were like, just silence, but willing him to do it. And they, they told me afterwards that if there'd been girls there, some of the girls might have laughed and that would have put him off. But he got through it and he got his GC. So I, I came up with that idea and it really worked. And I did four GCSEs in the same time that most people were doing once. So we did English, English literature, drama, and media studies. It kind of worked kind of quite beautifully that, so for example, it was in the day when you did assignments. So there's no terminal exam, you, you wrote assignments. So I, I could do Henry V, which was the set play. And I did that as the literature. And then for the drama, we acted the scene out. And then for media studies, we looked at the films Henry V, Platoon, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we compared the different films and so on. So the, the children that saw the boys all got four GCSEs. And when I, when we, I was, the, the school decided that they no longer, it was politically incorrect to have an all boys group and all girls group. So, we, yeah. so after that's fine. It worked. And I thought it was a good idea. However, they then went to one where it was a top 30 children. My last two years, I did it with a top 30 children. And they were smashing the best group of young people I've ever taught because they just, whatever I said they would do, they did do. And all 30 of them got four GCSEs. The majority of them got A's in three subjects. But the one story I didn't know about at the time was a girl in that class and taught her for a whole five years. When she first came, she was in what they call special needs group. She had yeah. different English. She got four GCSEs for me, two A's and two B's, which is great. A few years later, I'm working in a nearby school and as a consultant, and some of the boys were being really awful. So the deputy head came up, and I vaguely knew him. And he said, I'm going to stop you here, boys. He said, because this man that you've got here is a, a good teacher. I'll tell you how good he is, he said. He told my daughter at the school down the road, she came to him with special needs. She got two A's, two B's. What Mr. Hosker doesn't know, because she's only just rung this morning and told me, she just got a first class degree in English <laughs> university. Now that's, that's what I'm proud of. I'm proud that I got... Yeah. Young people, I was able to move them on from 
that was one example. I mean, they all weren't as good as that painfully, but I was able to get the best out of every single young person that I had. And I think, I think the fact that I did drama at university and I did it when I was a teacher actually helps me in my books because I'm, I'm not, oh, I'm, I'm not, not surprised at all. And you know, do something, you know, and see how does that look? How does that feel or wherever? Yeah. How does that voice sound like? You know, and it's, it's just one of those things that I, I can, I can do that and give them that character belief, make, make them a believable character. And by the way, the same school I was just talking about when I went back as a consultant, I had this thing where young people had to do Shakespeare and I love Shakespeare, but he's never ever meant to be read. Shakespeare is meant to be seen on a stage. That's why. It's just, yeah. Uh, very good point. Yeah. Never met. No, Shakespeare, he never wrote it down himself. It was always written down by his actors after he died. Did you not know that? I had no, this makes sense because I adored Shakespeare. But when I was looking at a board of yeah. words that he'd made up, which is great, I struggled. But as soon as it's on stage, it has life to it. I wanted to do it. He, what he did was he wrote speeches and he would give the main actors the speeches and he was a director. So, for example, the start of Romeo and Juliet is one of the bawdiest, rudest scenes you can possibly imagine. <laughs> you read it, he has uh, one of his men going to the back wall pretending to urinate. And he goes, I, my naked weapon is out. Uh, yes, uh... his naked weapon is out. And then one of his other says, yeah, says, tis known if, if you were fouled, you would be poor John. Poor John was a shriveled up bitch. So that's how Shakespeare wrote, wrote his plays. And, and he, he wrote them gave out the scripts and then they would, they would change and he, he wrote them to fit his characters. Yeah. His actors. And, and that's, that's the, the best way to be. To, he, so Will Kemp was one of his actors. He was a great comedian and a great crossdresser. So when you see the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, that was probably Will Kemp, who was great at hamming it up and, and coming up with bawdy jokes, very Les Dawson like in, in my view. But that that's was incredible. You know, but the idea is about Shakespeare that, we, 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 we teach him badly. And anyway, I, I come back to the story. <laughs> what I was doing was I used to take the scene and act it out. And the idea was the children had to direct. And, uh, one day in my school, we were doing it. We were doing the scene in Macbeth where Macbeth starts to lose it. And we we're doing it and said, right, right, children, you know, how would you, how would you do this scene? And they said, well, you've got to get really upset, Mr. Oscar. You've got to start really, you know, ranting and raving. And so I did all this. Oh, that's great. And I said, what's going to happen? No, I said, well, Lady Macbeth's going to slap you. So I said, <laughs> and he was a lovely young teacher, Joe. She's a little, she, she said, so she went like that. And he said, no, miss, no, give him a good welly. You probably hardly, <laughs> give him a good welly. So one of you, she wouldn't do one of the other things. She said, and I was standing and she cracked me across the head. <laughs> really, and, that really, and the kids said, yeah, that's it. And they all got good grades. So anyway, I went around other schools to do it. Uh, in one, one year where they were doing it, and it was The Tempest uh, with uh, Cali and Prospero. Now, Prospero was, I am Prospero. And, uh, and Cali, I am Kelly, man. I want join us. <laughs> so what I did, some costumes I had underneath this really scruffy uh, outfit I'd, I'd got. And above it, I had... Um, a cloak and a staff. And I was coming, oh, I am proud. And then when I changed the carriage, I just took it off. And it went down well. And then a few weeks later, I was in the school, not as Caliban, but just to see a teacher. Not as Caliban, yeah. I walked down a corridor. As I walked down the corridor, the year group that had seen me were all there. And what did they all shout? Did they all shout, it's Caliban, it's Prosper and other shit. It's Caliban! So the carriage <laughs> members was the horrible monster, but I, they remembered it and, and, and it kind of worked. So yeah, but this drama, is it. drama, character and, and, and getting, not being afraid. Uh, that's it. Not being afraid is, is another thing that I think is, is invaluable that when you're writing, you've not got to be afraid that you're not going to hit the right note with someone. I was terrified the first few books. I thought people are going to laugh at what I've written here. It's not very good because you, you know, you have that kind of, lack of belief and you've just got to get the belief and people like you getting in touch with me saying that you like the books you know it's it's, it's wonderful because that's it's love like, the books griff not like be kind so, to yourself a lot of my family say well oh, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire when you tell telling <laughs> yeah. me that. yeah my, my ego goes up but that's part of it you know and, and it's okay certainly the criticism that i do get criticized from some of my readers but you know it's, it's 
But that's fine. You take the good with the bad, but it's nice when you get the good, when someone one says, you've done all right. And like you said, the Alfred character always tells people when they've done well. He always oh, actually but that's think- the thing. And I mean, he'll kill someone that comes for him, if you will. Yeah. But yeah. The, the way that he talks and the way that he includes, especially in the story, like you said, as a warrior, for example, people, if you're thinking in any age, as a man in armor or with a gun, when you can empower a boy who's lost his father or a girl who's lost their mother, when you can empower them to feel like they are part of what you were doing at eight years old, when they're clearly not, you've saved someone's life, I think. And I'll probably have to talk to you in private about something I've got planned for next time. Um, but just before we finish, I want to say on recording, because I'll say it to you to your face when we get a chance, but I truly believe that I owe you money, first of all, You've helped me in my businesses. That's why I'm happy to buy as many books as I can and lunches are on me. You've helped me to understand things about myself, even having to have to take a few days off. And I really was most gutted. You can't tell anyone else. I was most gutted not be able to come up and spend time with you because I think people like you are extremely valuable and they should be appreciated. And yes, your family are going to hate me for saying it, but I really do believe you've helped me to save my own life in some respects. and I look forward to hanging on your coattails and understanding all the people that you've been around and reenactors and you're talking about all over the world being loved, having plenty of money, people that can make their own understandings of the maths there. People welcome you to be a part of what they do. You're welcome in musical world, the directive world. And I think if people have missed the sense of this, maybe they were looking for money from songwriting. Maybe they were looking for a specific thing when actually... What I've learned is it's, it's definitely everything. It's being fair. It's working extremely hard, being kind and having time for people that want to help you. So bottom of my heart, all the words that you can't really make sense of for helping me help myself. That's what's the most important thing. So give me this platform. Oh, be- well, that's the thing. And, and every day, um, cause I work with wonderful people and I put a lot of sweat into this show as someone who was recording a music video for me when I was 21. He said, you know, this is going to be here forever, right? This video. So this episode will be here forever. That's what my wife's worried about. <laughs> and I will be, everything I do, especially the big arrow that I'll shoot in January is going to make sure that everything I've done is, is dragged up. And the more people that get a chance, even if they can't afford to, to buy your books, because we are living in that world as well. Listen to this. This is free. It will always remain free. So uh, Griff, thank you so much. And uh, I'll be definitely borrowing your time another day. Hello there, sweet listener. Thank you for listening to today's show. And I just wanted to say, we do have an Instagram. I know that some of you guys are quite interested in just sending those private emails. And I promise you, they are absolute gold dust to me. And I love receiving those emails when people get time to send them with their songs, with their questions. And mainly, I love your stories about how you're listening to the show, where you found it, what it means to you. Those are the things I'll probably take to my grave, to be completely honest. But If you want to be out there on social media, please get in touch. I wish I knew that part on Instagram. We're going to be getting stuff up on YouTube as well. Reach out, send me a DM, send me a voice note, send me a video. I want to see you guys. I want to see your shows. I want to hear your songs. Thank you again for listening to the show. If you want to be involved and get full value for your creative process, please do so. But if you're one of those wonderful people that just likes to sit and observe. I know you're out there and thank you so much for your attention. It really does mean a lot. So no need to get in touch, but if you feel like you want to be involved, please do so. Much love and bye-bye.